0: welcome to the modern art notes podcast i'm tyler green this week thomas cole's refrain the paintings of catskill creek it's on view now at the thomas cole national historic site in catskill new york for the first time the exhibition considers cole's paintings of catskill creek which is actually a 46 mile long river that drains part of the catskill mountains and enters the hudson river just below the town of catskill as a series the exhibition includes 12 Coles and paintings of catskill creek by artists who followed cole including Asher B. Durand and Frederick Edwin Church. Thomas Cole's Refrain was curated by my guest, H. Daniel Peck, a professor emeritus at Vassar College. It's on view through November 3rd, at which point it will travel to the Hudson River Museum in Yonkers, New York. Peck is also the author of an excellent accompanying book, also titled Thomas Cole's Refrain. It was published by Cornell University Press's Three Hills imprint. Amazon offers it for $32. On the second segment, Book of Beasts at the J. Paul Getty Museum. And before we get to the show, I'm usually pretty lousy at reminding you all to please rate and review us at your podcatcher of choice, but please rate and review us at your podcatcher of choice. Daniel Peck, after the break. Celebrate wine, and inspiring conversation at the Getty Villa on June 2nd and 16th. Learn more about the exhibition Plato in L.A., Contemporary Artists' Visions, and Hear UCLA classicist Catherine Morgan discuss Plato's relevance today, and enjoy wine and appetizers with fun-loving philosophers in an enchanting outdoor setting. Find out more about this perfect summer event and get tickets at getty.edu slash 360. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Icons of Style, a Century of Fashion Photography, showcasing the industry's rich and varied history through more than 200 photographs, by famous practitioners and lesser-known yet influential artists. From elegant 20th-century portraits to the trend-setting fashions of Beyonce, David Bowie, Audrey Hepburn, Run-DMC, and more, this broad and diverse perspective on fashion traces its trajectory from niche industry to powerful cultural force. On view through September 22nd. Visit mfah.org icons for more. Support for The Man podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, a museum that believes in the power of dynamic experiences with art. The Pulitzer presents Striking Power, Iconoclasm in Ancient Egypt, the first exhibition to examine specific periods in the rich history of Egypt when clashes between competing leaders, religions, and ideologies resulted in damage to, and destruction of, sacred and political images. Focusing on the legacies of pharaohs hath and Akhenaten, as well as the destruction of objects in late antiquity, the exhibition will pair damaged works from fragmented heads to altered inscriptions with undamaged examples. With nearly 40 masterpieces on loan from the renowned collection of the Brooklyn Museum, Striking Power is on view from March 22nd through August 11th, 2019. Striking Power, Iconoclasm in Ancient Egypt is organized in collaboration with the Brooklyn Museum. For more information, please visit pulitzerarts.org. And we're back. Dan Peck, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast.
1: Thank you, Tyler.
0: Let's start with the geography that's in the title, Catskill Creek. What is Catskill Creek? Where is it? And why was it so important to Thomas Cole?
1: Well, Catskill Creek isn't really a creek. <laughs> it's, it's so strange about the uh, place names of various bodies of water in the in the Northeast. Walden Pond isn't a pond. It's a, quite a large lake. And Catskill Creek is actually a middle-sized river. It's a significant tributary of the Hudson River that uh, runs out of the Catskill Mountains and into the Hudson at uh, Catskill, New York. Catskill, New York is where Cole relocated himself from urban New York in 1836, and there's a whole story, of course, in that as well about why he did that and when he did that and what was going on around him in that, in that period. In any case, uh, Cole first visited this area and, and, and must have seen Catskill Creek in 1825 when he made his his legendary first expedition into the Hudson River Valley. On his return trip from Albany and Co- Cohoas Falls area, he came downriver and stopped in Catskills and headed straight up into the uh, Catskill Mountains about 11 miles away. And that's what he was really interested in. The Catskills were already a tourist area and uh, he'd heard about them and was very excited about them and went up into the mountains and painted Catterskill Falls and other what he called wild scenes and then made paintings uh, from them, once he got back to New York, and these are the so-called wilderness paintings that really first captured the attention of of the American art world. In my book, I talk about how it's possible. He must have walked right through this landscape of Catskill Creek, right by it. But I found a sketch in the um, Detroit archive that suggests that maybe he didn't really take much note of the scene from which he would later paint these pictures of the Catskills from a position uh, right along Catskill Creek, two or three close by locations. The, the sketch is interesting. It's it, There's a couple of observations on it. One of them says Creek turns around to the left here. <laughs> I observed that th- this is an extremely basic observation. And so in, in, in the sketch must be dated 1827 because that's when... Cole's first Catskill Creek painting is completed probably in the fall of that year. So I think it's a scene Cole might have missed. There's a very large meander at this point just outside the village of Catskill. As Cole looked out toward the so-called
0: Catskill front
1: or escarpment, you know, what he saw were these high
0: peaks of the Catskills, not like your California mountains, but... In the mid-threes, though, in the mid-3,000 feet.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Catterskill High Peak is a is a, is a a big mountain. It's neighboring Round Top is also. And so Cole is looking off toward the mountains from this site and he begins to uh, paint them in 1827. And then what I observe in the book is what's so interesting about this for me is that he just keeps painting it. And Cole was, a, was an artist who really did not like to repeat himself. He, he was very restless about that. And when his early patrons, for example, would ask him to make a copy of a work for someone else, he really resisted doing that and thought it was drudgery. So the fact that he continued to paint this scene, it's basically the same scene with variations of perspective, and he paints it during all three decades of his mature career and paints it right up until about three years before he dies, his early death. Catskill Creek, which is, um, you might say, a modest stream in his essay on American scenery where he names other American Rivers, very prominently, we don't find Catskill Creek except perhaps in an indirect way, where he speaks of this beautiful stream flowing by. In any case, Catskill Creek was, I think, very, very important for for coal for all kinds of reasons.
0: You mentioned that it's slightly more prominent than a creek. It's it's 46 miles long. At least today, it's 46 miles long. You mentioned the Detroit drawing um, in about 1827. When does Cole start making paintings along the creek, and why do you think? that's when he starts.
1: Well, the first uh, the first picture that we have of Catskill Creek is dated 1827. It's a very beautiful work that's in the De Young Museum in San Francisco. It's called A View Near the Village of Catskill. This is the first oil painting of, of the scene. And in my research in Detroit, I, I discovered what has to be the sketch for that particular painting. He goes on in the very next year to paint the scene again, it's in a very similar composition except whereas the de young painting from 1827 is a spring or summer scene and the one that came next, which he completed over the over the period 1828 and 29 is, is autumnal, beautifully autumnal and it has a very similar title view near Catskill and it's in a private collection and uh, we have it in our in our exhibition it's a it's a gorgeous work and very similar in composition one theory i have about it is that it's just possible that cole was already then thinking of some kind of progression maybe a seasonal progression in this case Cole made a list in 1827, the same year he began painting Catskill Creek in a sketchbook, a list of subjects for pictures, as he called it. And among these 122 ideas, as he called them, for pictures, several of them speak of of, of painting the same scene at different times of year and from different viewpoints and so on. So I think Cole was very interested in this idea from the start.
0: We'll have images of all of these paintings and and the Detroit sketches on manpodcast.com. You note that Cole paints Catskill Creek a good bit, but he almost never paints it kind of as a long flowing creek. The, the, often in his paintings, it looks more like a standing body of water or, or, or a lake or a pond, which is kind of an interesting juxtaposition. What What, what do you think accounts for it?
1: Well, uh, yeah, it's fascinating to me. The first two paintings, the ones we were just talking about, Tyler—he really is painting the the river as a kind of lake or pond. In fact, the river at that point is is about two hundred feet across. Uh, it, you know, it, it's a, it's a really a modest, not a modest river. It's a, it's a middle-sized river and a significant one, and a significant tributary of the, of the Hudson River for sure. Just why Cole's first take on this scene leads him to paint it in in that way? I think. I mean, this brings me right back to that uh, sketch for the 1827 painting. In the sketch, there's no mistaking that it's a river, and and furthermore that the boundary line of the river, the bank of the river, is clearly the further turn of a wide meander. Uh, if you if you once you see the you know, the actual topography in this large point bar carved out by this large meander, you can see clearly that what the scene that Cole is representing there is a f- the farther turn of a of a large meander. In the painting, that disappears, it fades away, and instead we get what looks very much like a lake. I mean, you know, in, in Cole's later, in Cole's essay on American Scenery, where he categorizes American elements of landscape and compares the With their counterparts in Europe. He says that lakes are a very special feature of American landscape. There's really nothing quite like them in Europe. And so I think it's possible that from the start he was taking note of, of, of this. And and so, maybe. Also, interestingly, the second of these Catskill Creek paintings that I just mentioned, uh, the one called View Near Catskill, that's in a private collection, is a beautifully autumnal scene with American red maples and just glowing, you know, a fire, as they say. This work actually turns out it was was commissioned by a, a Hudson Valley. Patroon Stephen Van Rensselaer III and his wife. And they had earlier commissioned and gotten from Cole a painting of, of Lake
0: Winnipesaukee. In the White Mountains.
1: Yes, in the White Mountains. And it's conceivable that Cole was imagining this as a pendant. I, I mean, he clearly was providing it to Van to Van Rensselaer III as a companion work of some kind to the work that they already had purchased of a lake. <laughs> and so it, it's possible that he's thinking that that's in this as well. Although, again, the the painting created the year before, 1827, also has this very lake-like or pond-like aspect to it. It isn't until the 1830s when Cole comes back from his first European tour that he begins to give definition to Catskill Creek as a a river.
0: That's an interesting point because one of the things you note in the book is that Cole begins exploring the trans-Hudson West, if you will you know the, the the going west along the creek up into the Catskills at almost the exact moment the Erie Canal opens the Erie Canal opens in 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 1825 do you think that's a direct even intentional connection Cole made and intended us to 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 put the dots together or is that a coincidence or dot dot dot
1: well in the book i do talk about the Erie Canal just a little bit you know that when Cole made his legendary first sketching expedition up into the, uh, the Hudson River Valley and uh, eventually made his way up into the high peaks of the Catskills. Along the way, he was very close to an operating Erie Canal, the easternmost leg of the Erie Canal between Albany and Rome, New York, was actually opened in 1823. So when Cole makes his his expedition in the summer of 1825, with the canal to have its grand opening uh, only a few weeks later in New York in 1825, Cole has, has already probably taken a steamboat right alongside the Erie Canal, an operating canal. On that journey, Cole made a list of 22 sketches that he made during this journey. And uh, it's fascinating, the 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 list uh, the entries on the list are not dated, but they are sequential. So we know the order in which Cole was at each of these places. He begins at West Point, he's interested in the ruins of, at Fort Putnam, then he's upriver at Troy and look, taking a view of the Hudson River and sketching that. Then he's at Cohoas Falls, he makes a number of sketches there of of the great falls there and then heads back down to but but in that period he he was right next to the Erie Canal and in fact when he was at Cohoas fall because in one sketch he identifies exactly where he was standing on a cliff we know that he was standing right on top of the Erie Canal literally it was right at his feet and yet none of these sketches is a sketch of the Erie Canal. And I don't want to make too much of that. It's very, very speculative, but I do think it's interesting because the canal was already known as the wonder work of the age, and there's no way that Cole could have missed it. And in the book, I do – this is where I take a lesson from the Metropolitan Show where they make a a very important point about how Cole's growing up in industrial northern England might have been – might have predisposed him against an industrial canal in certain ways. Again, it's it's speculative. So, again, you're asking a different kind of question. The Erie Canal provides a way west for the United States, of course. It opens the way west for, for, for settlement, for, for commerce, for transport. It brings the cost of shipping down tenfold. It turns New York City into the, great, the greatest port of the United States that has all kinds of implications that have to do with the west, for sure.
0: So we've been talking about the 1820s. And you note in the book that the Catskill Creek paintings, quote, become the most sustained sequence of landscapes Cole ever produced, and that he makes Catskill Creek paintings in the 1820s, in the 1830s, in the 1840s. So let's push into the 1830s a bit. How does the way he shows the creek change as as we get toward the Oxbow and into the 1830s?
1: What's happening now is Cole has departed for his first European tour in the spring of 1829, The last part of his travels in Europe are in Italy, which he loved, and he comes back home because there's a cholera threat in New York and he's worried about his uh, parents. He returns to New York in November of 1832 in the very moment when the votes that will re-elect Andrew Jackson are being counted. And so this is obviously a very different America than the one he had left three and a half years earlier. These Catskill Creek paintings, that begins to complete in the 1830s, very soon after his return from Europe, are, are, are different. They're different in several different ways. For one thing, they do show what you might call European influence. These sunsets that become more luminous are obviously indebted partly to Claude Lorraine and other painters, great painters. And Cole saw a lot of not just great art in, in, in Europe, but also you know great scenery as well. And in his essay on American Scenery, he talks about Italian sunsets and how... Utterly magnificent they are. So I think Cole is bringing back from Europe both Italian scenery and European art, and they definitely inform these works that he begins to paint in the 1830s. The very first one, by the way, uh, is one of the first paintings that he sells to his the person who would become his most important patron, Lumen Reed. There's, there are lots of interesting things to say about patronage in Cole, of course. I mentioned Stephen Van Rensselaer III, as having been the purchaser of Cole's second Catskill Creek painting in 1829, he was a patroon, an aristocrat. Lumen Reed is a dry goods merchant, and uh, we can see how, how New York economic culture and artistic culture is changing and has changed while Cole's been away. In any case, this work, it's called Sunset View on the Catskill, one At least one of the very first works he sells to Reed, and then in that very same year, 1833, as this painting was completed, Reed commissions The Course of Empire, which gets completed three years later. So there's all kinds of interesting exchanges going on here. The second one is, is a very interesting work, and it is actually Cole's own replica— of the work he sold to Reed and for a painter who couldn't stand to repeat himself and who really resisted doing that it's fascinating that Cole did make such an exact copy of this work it was found in his studio upon his death and it may never have been sold one one person uh, speculates that he may have loved the scene so much that he wanted to have one for himself that's possible. It's a lovely idea. I think a more likely uh, reason is that he he was imagining an important commission down the road, and he wanted, for some reason or other, to have a very, very cop- careful copy that he could work from. And sure enough, five years later, in 1838, he does create this much larger, very beautiful painting that's in the Yale Art Gallery, and uh, has a curiously mistitled <laughs> title, North Mountain and Catskill Creek, and we can we can talk about that a little if you want to. The, these paintings are the identical scene. Now Cole has moved from uh, the heights, from an area called Jefferson Heights, from which he painted the first two panoramic views of the Catskills in the 1820s, now he's right down at the Riverside. And some people might argue that he learned this Riverside perspective from his reading of the English aesthetician William Gilpin, who talked about Riversides as being the ideal place to capture what he called a picturesque vision of of nature. So now Cole's down by the Riverside looking upriver. If you don't mind my telling this anecdote (laughs) about the title of the Yale painting, when I first went over to New Haven to Examine it, and the first times I did that, I noticed the title, and and then later I traveled throughout the the region of these paintings with a geologist, and then later a cartographer. It became clear to me that North Mountain is nowhere in that painting, and so I think some people might might have argued that Cole w- was simply painting uh, North Mountain badly. But one of the points I make about these paintings, Tyler, is I, it's, it's a point I really want to emphasize, is that I think that that while Cole takes great liberties with this Catskill Creek landscape. Among his his American landscapes, it's, it's remarkably faithful to, to what he saw. Now, there are all kinds of fanciful things in them, as there are in all of Cole's American landscapes. Nevertheless, I think there was something about his response to this landscape that made him unusually... Uh, faithful to it, you know. There's that famous uh, remark he made to his patron uh, Gilmore, that you know Gilmore was urging him to to stick to nature, to really be faithful to nature's forms, and you know he writes back and says uh, that would be like a kind of tyranny, <laughs> the shackles of the imagination. And Cole Hamill had wanted him nothing to do with that idea, but nevertheless, I think one of the things that distinguishes this these ten Catskill Creek paintings, as as I have identified them, in this is a very good example. North Mountain at Catskill Creek. It's not North Mountain. It's actually a very careful study of Blackhead Mountain. And, and there it is. And once you know that's what it is, then you see it right away. So in any case, there is this very beautiful painting that uh, Cole paints in 1830 or completes in 1838. And it's lovely. And also within these works, he's got these interesting human figures. And we can talk about them more maybe later in the discussion if you want to, because small, interesting human figures appear in all the Catskill Creek paintings. So maybe for now, I I would just say that there's this, I would call it a subset of these works that all take exactly the same view of Catskill Creek from a riverside perspective just outside the village of Catskill. We can move on to the one other Painting that Cole completed during the 1830s, which takes a very different view. Again, an elevated panoramic view, and this is that great painting, a view on the Catskill early autumn, that's at the Metropolitan Museum. If if, if you would like to, to to go in that direction,
0: yeah, and it has the most different maybe human interaction in in the lower foreground, in the central foreground. I mean, it's it's not only a panorama in a way that the other Catskill Creek paintings aren't, but the action, the human action, is more active.
1: It certainly is. You know, it's it's so interesting to me. This is the largest of the Catskill Creek paintings by far. It's, what, 38 by 60 inches or something. It, it clearly was, was painted for, you know, major exhibition purposes. Cole it was commissioned by Jonathan Sturgis, who was actually Reed's business partner. This is after Reed had died, and Cole felt very, tragic about uh, Reed's death and then came to know Sturgis. and so it's a fascinating painting and there's all kinds of things to say about it here one one thing is that here this is completed in 1836-37 and here Cole returns to the panoramic view he's back up on Jefferson Heights which is this elevated area outside about half a mile outside Catskill Village and he's looking at that same view. He's looking southwesterly toward Catterskill High Peak again and Roundtop Mountain and South Mountain superimposed on them. So he's returning to that view, but now he's really very carefully delineating in those early 1820s works of the same scene. Uh, just as the river doesn't look like a river, it's much more generalized as a body of water. The same thing is true of, of the geography of overall of of the scene. So now Cole is really uh, carefully delineating the point bar. You know this this rounded. One of the things I say at the very end of the book, in my epigraph or epilogue, is that a point bar is an oxbow in the making, and you know Cole completed this work, this view of Catskill Creek. In the same period that he completed the Oxbow, and I have to believe that his painting Catskill Creek for a decade before he painted the Oxbow, that there is some connection there between his living and and, and so often seeing this large meander at Catskill Creek. And as you know, Cole was so interested in geology and surely would have known that that, that an, a, a point bar, it's a process of sedimentation, that it, without human intervention, a point bar will become an oxbow just like the one at Mount Holyoke with the Connecticut River. So in any case, the landscape is now much more closely delineated and then getting around to your – Important point about the human figures, there are a number of them, and they've some of them are appearing in earlier of the eighteen thirties paintings. What you have is on the right side, you have a hunter coming up out of the valley it 's along the right uh, the right side of the painting, and he 's coming up along a slatted fence. And and he's up near the top and looks across the fence. And the fence is downed at that point, and he looks across the downed area of the fence over to meadow, where there are a woman and and a baby, an infant, on a blanket. And then down in the valley, on the point bar, you know, down there on in the meadow, on the point bar, there's a, a young man running after these two horses. One is white. One is brown. For the viewer, those the man and the horses are sharply divided off by a Claudian framing tree. He's absolutely (laughs) bounded off from them for us as viewers, just as the hunter is in some ways bounded off from the woman and the infant by a fence. In other words, he's fenced in as well. And then in the distance, there's a rower rounding the big bend in the distance. And a rower had appeared uh, in, in the three earlier Catskill Creek paintings, and I do attribute Significant meaning to these to these figures, including the rower, the rower can be of course a stock figure in nineteenth century American painting. It also can be used as staffage to to render scale. but uh, my argument about the human figures in these Catskill Creek paintings is that they 're very important uh, they 're what I call emblematic and and I do make a distinction between symbolic and emblematic in this way in any case there 's a million things for me to say about these figures. That these figures in this painting were, were have, have always been regarded, this is maybe overstating it a little bit, but I think it's largely true, as merely decorative, as somehow blending into a beautiful landscape harmoniously. That's the word that's been used over and over again. And it's a view of this very important work. I mean, you know, for the Metropolitan Museum, this painting is certainly one of their most important American landscapes, no question about it. So it's a hugely important artwork. And, and and again, these figures who, they're little, but they're not tiny. I mean, they're doing things, and they're doing things that inevitably draw viewers to wonder what it is they're doing. Way back in the 1950s, this is what I discovered in sort of tracking the art history of this painting, is that there was an art historian during the 1950s. Who whose special area of expertise was Cole's Italian landscapes, and 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 those were the works that he thought were by far the most important, and he regarded this painting as be, being very much like Cole's Italian landscapes, mellow, harmonious, all those things, and so I think it goes all the way back to the 1950s, this painting being regarded that way, and these figures, sort of sort of blending in. And for me, they don't blend in. I think the separations between them between the mother and the baby, each reaching out toward one another, the hunter and the woman and child, separated by a long distance, the runner running after the horses who are separated from him. I find in all these paintings these kinds of separations which I think are very symbolic of something in Cole that has to do with distancing and separation, so you know i'm I'm saying. <laughs> I'm saying more, more there than I meant to say, but I do work it out in the book and I, I think my take on this painting is a is is very different from earlier versions of it.
0: Yeah, the composition in the trees is super cloudian but but the action of the people is not. And and the way the people extend and their action extends into the middle ground of the painting instead of kind of being on a stage set in the foreground is is really different too. There's also kind of a youthful optimism in in the painting at the Met. And by the 1840s, the paintings of and around Catskill Creek feel really different. How so?
1: Yes, the 1840s, I mean, it's a, each of these decades. You know, my, the, the argument in my book is that is these 10 paintings, these works that I've identified as 10 paintings of Catskill Creek. And it's just, just to say this is slightly arbitrary because Cole made other paintings of Near and, and, and not far from Catskill Creek, but the 10 that I'm grouping together are works whose viewpoints, whose whose vantage points are near this large meander, either just above it or on the riverside right by it, and then looking off at certain perspectives of the Catskill Hutt. High Peaks, and what i 'm arguing here is that they do form a they are a sequence, and in a certain way, I argue a series not like Cole 's allegorical series like the Voyage of Life or the Course of Empire, which are driven by narrative, but of a different kind and that 's what I try to work out what kind of series is this and and just to say this along the way, Tyler I, I do find narratives in these paintings i think there are very important narrative elements within all these works but they're in some ways disguised narratives or foreshortened narratives would be a way to say it so so that's the first way of talking about the paintings from the 1840s that i do see them as continuous with all of the others going all the way back to the two painted during the 1820s cole's career as you know is is nicely punctuated by his two european tours at the end of the 1820s he goes to Europe for three and a half years, and then the 1830s becomes a very distinctive decade of tremendous achievement for him. You know, his great allegories, The Course of Empire and the Voyage of Life, which he begins in 1839, and the Oxbow, and and so on and so forth. And then in the early 1840s, Cole goes off on his second and last European tour, which lasts only a year, uh, 1841-42. Just before he goes off on that tour, he completes a Catskill Creek painting. This one is called Sun set in the Catskills. It's a a beautiful work. It's actually now set half a mile upriver from the ones that he, he completed during the early 1830s. He's now up at a further, the far turn of this large meander that I've been talking about. And he's very near a colonial, a stone colonial farmhouse the Van Vechten estate that was built in 1690 and which which clearly was for Cole the symbol of a vanishing rural order that he identified with the dutch settlers no question about it and and uh, it appears this house appears in in a number of these works in this particular work it's within view except we don't see it it's hidden it seems to be hidden by trees and the Van Vechten mill had a House had a mill right on the shore. So in this painting, Cole's right there, and he's also, by the way, right by the railroad bridge that crossed over at this point. And, and I'm going to be talking now about the railroad. It's a very important element in these works of the 1840s as we go along here because it's just an, an essential part of the story of these of these final works. In any case, Cole's, Cole's uh, standing here And it turns out the painting is a strange, the uh, vantage point of the painting has a strange elevated position for Cole. And in the Detroit archive, I discovered a sketch that I'm sure lies somewhere behind this painting. And Cole actually titled it From the Railroad Bridge near Catskill. And it's exactly the same perspective. In this sketch, you see a structure, and it's clearly the Van Vecten Mill. In the completed painting, you you seem not to see it at all. You're looking upriver, you're looking at a dam, you're looking at rapids, and you're actually looking straight at what appears to be the end of the water, which is with the confluence of Catterskill Creek coming down out of the mountains from the left and Catskill Creek coming down from the mountains on the right. So in any case, what happened here? This is where I found a, a very interesting photograph taken in 1895 of exactly the same scene from a railroad bridge that replaced the one that coal was standing on many years later. And sure enough, obvious to see is the Van Vechten Mill. Three stories of it, a very ungainly structure, was still standing there 130 years after it was built. And what, it's clear when you look at this now, you can see that coal is in some ways masking these structures and why. And I, I try to speculate about that in the book. So he completes that in 1841. Shortly before he goes to Europe, he goes to Europe for one year. Strange to say, while he's abroad, he completes a, another Catskill campaign in Rome, and it's a very beautiful work called Settler's Home in the Catskills, which is in a, a private collection and has hardly ever been seen by anybody. It's in our show, and it's it's really gorgeous. I I have been on the trail of this painting for many years. I was aware of it only because of a black and white photograph in an older book, and I began to try to track it then, and I was able to track it back as far as the last New York gallery that sold it. Finally, I was able to find it and get a good image of it for the book, and we now have it for the show. It's a beautiful work, and... There's all kinds of things to say about it. It it shows a Dutch colonial farmhouse with a a half-moon weather vane. It shows the same peaks that appear in the other works, that same double dolphin fin shape of Catterskill High Peak and Round Top. There they all are. But when I had my cartographer try to locate the vantage point, he just threw up his hands. (laughs) And the reason, you, you can find all the elements of this landscape in this painting, but you cannot find a viewpoint from which it could be seen this way. And that's because he painted from memory in Rome, Italy. And the reason I figured that out is I had seen a sketch in the New York Historical Society, which unmistakably was the sketch for this painting. And this sketch called titled Roma, 1844, to my friend, Thomas Rossiter, who was one of Cole's fellow artists in Rome that year. So there are all kinds of interesting things to say about that. This is the most idealized of the Catskill Creek painting. Here there's no sign of tannery smoke as there is in almost all the others. Even going all the way back to that first one in 1827, there is tannery smoke on the intermediate horizon line. And uh, here it's gone. So all signs of defacement by industrial intrusion are gone here, and and I think it, with the title "Settler's Home in the Castle," Cole means to suggest that this could be a colonial scene, and that what he's done here is transport us back into the into the colonial past. So that's the next work in the 1840s. And then finally, he comes back in 1842 in the, in the summer. In, in August of, of 1842, he returns home to, to Catskill, to which he had moved in 1836. And um, he begins to work on this work that I've already referred to, River in the Catskills. Uh, This is in Boston, and it's a fascinating painting. It's the second largest of all of them behind the big metropolitan work. And here, one scholar has, has argued that it is, quote, the first important painting in the history of art to depict a railroad train. Okay, for sure it does. And down in the Valley, there it is crossing a wooden railroad bridge. There's the locomotive, mostly hidden by the bridge, but the smokestack visible and the smoke and the cars trailing behind it. And then off to the right on the other side of Catskill Creek are the Van Vechten farmhouse, fully exposed by Cole, by the way, for the first time in this painting. In other paintings, it's sort of shrouded or masked. And the mill as well is very prominently there. For many, many years, this painting was regarded as as representing a kind of a reconciliation of what might, was called the machine and the garden. This idea that there are a number of artworks in in the 19th century, especially antebellum painting and other forms of art, that are essentially trying to reconcile one American mythology, that is a Jeffersonian dream of an agrarian present and future for the country. Jefferson's notion that the United States would import industrial goods and would always be essentially agrarian, a country of, of, of noble, well-educated yeoman farmers on the one side, and then the necessary industrial development that was the other, not dream, but the other future that everybody was beginning to be aware of. And there are a number of paintings by other artists that I think very clearly can be read that way. And this work was too. Here's this tiny little toy-like railroad train chugging through the distant countryside. It was regarded that way through the 1960s and 1970s. And then along came my friend Alan Wallach, who sort of challenged that one in a very severe way. And I I think he's absolutely right. This is a painting that is not about reconciling those views. This is a painting that is uh, expressing Cole's rage about industrialization in the only way that was available to him in, in that period. If he'd lived another generation later, he might have you know, done this in a completely different fashion. But the giveaway are these two huge stumps in the immediate foreground with this man with an axe by his side. I think once you begin to read the painting this way, it, it becomes inevitable that you begin to understand it that way one of the things i do in the book is is i try to see in some way or another all of the works of the 1840s in relation to the threat of industrialization and specifically of the railroad which by the way there's there's an anecdote from an old newspaper that I quote in the book and the owner of the Van Vecten farmhouse the old 1690 farmhouse was still owned by the Van Vecten family in when Cole in Cole's time John Van Vecten was the owner then there's a news, newspaper report where his John Van Van Vecten son Peter is quoted in an interview where he reports having witnessed his father's discussion with the building of the railroad in 1836, the chief engineer, and they were discussing and debating about where the railroad would go, and they were proposing different routings of the railroad line. So they proposed between the old house and its barn, and that gets rejected. And then Peter Van Vechten says, then the engineer said to my father – "Quote: I will run this railroad train right through your house if I want to," and so obviously this was incredibly charged, and to the degree that Cole himself would have known about an episode like that, it certainly would have fueled his his anger. Where the railroad went, by the way, they ran it right around the southwest corner of that old stone house within feet of it. It almost destroyed the foundation and when I finally got to look at this property a couple of years ago with the present owner, the house has been beautifully restored by the way, the owner today is still having to shore up that southeast corner. (laughs) The great berm that was created to run the tracks from, from the bridge to the house and around it and then northward again, to make another crossing of the river farther north. That great berm is still standing there, this great rectangular berm. Cole had plenty to be angry about, and in this painting, I firmly believe he is giving expression to his anger. And then finally, two years later, Cole completes what I believe is the last of the Catskill Creek paintings. It has a very prosaic title. It's called Catskill Creek NY. (laughs) And yet, I believe there's a lot more going on in this painting than this. This painting is also set up near the Van Vechten house, and again you can 't see it Cole has rather hidden it in the landscape but in a, di- in a different way. There are symbolic elements all over the place on the far left there 's a recently hewn tree which is down to the left, which was the, the path of the railroad train, so it 's actually a pretty, pretty immediate and direct symbol of the process that that led to the construction of the railroad line in which destroyed three great groves of forest that Cole lamented in many poems, one actually titled The Lament of the Forest. It's true that Cole was furious about this and deeply saddened by it. And I begin my book, by the way, in the prologue with a passage from his journal in which he talks about this, his anger and his sadness about uh, what has happened to his beloved scene. In any case, in this final Catskill Creek painting, here, all of that process gets represented in a somewhat different way, and, and there's a, another a number of things to say about it. For the first time in the whole Catskill Creek series, the rower, who actually is represented in every single work from the 1830s paintings on, from 1833 onward, for the only time in the series, he's not at midstream or floating on the river, he has reached its shore. There he is, he's pulling the boat ashore and just and he's this time for the only time he's come ashore with a companion who's standing several feet away from him behind a great boulder and pointing at something above him the way in which this figure has been interpreted uh, earlier is the point. The figure is supposed to be pointing at the quote pointing toward the the primeval wilderness so so again the the, the work is regarded as representing this polarity I'm called between the wild and the beautiful and the wilderness and the cultivated and so on i actually don't think that's right i think if you look carefully into the the right middle ground of this painting what you will find there is a beautiful meadow it's just you get a glimpse of it and in the meadow is a white oak with long horizontal limbs that could only have matured on pasture land. And I think this is the same space as you find in Settler's Home in the Catskills, where that I, that scene is broadened into the whole painting. I think that painting that Ro- Cole did in Rome is a kind of dilation of this vision of a of a settled space, which I think was just as important to Cole as the wild was. And I mean, that that's something that I actually... I talk about it in the book, and I actually don't make the point as strongly as I would make it now, as a matter of fact, that I think the wild was very important to Cole. I think that's true. On the other hand, the idea of a settled space is equally, if not as important to him in other kinds of ways.
0: In the Boston painting, the painting with the railroad, um, the forests are substantially gone. The, the forests have been cut down and eliminated, and, and that's a, that's a crucial part of that painting. In all of these 1840s paintings, you know, which you mentioned were painted at remove and somewhat imagined, the reflections in Catskill Creek, the, the reflections of the distant mountains are obviously impossible, which really kind of ramps up the sentimentalism of of the paintings. Cole uses reflection unlike any other American painter of the 19th century. For, for I think for other American painters, their use of reflection comes right out of Emerson and Nature. For for Cole, it comes out of his experience of I I imagine Italian painting, and finally the last thing I wanted to pull out was that you you write in the book that Cole uses the Catskill Creek landscape and landscapes, the landscape itself, and his paintings of them as as expressing and addressing a national issue and and progression, and probably cute listeners will have noticed that we've talked about rivers which was the first way America moved west, then the Erie Canal, which was the next way, and then the Erie Canal was itself supplanted by, by railroads, which we, which you have brought us around to here in the mid-1840s. Oh, and one other thing to pull out, oh, you've mentioned Cole's sketchbooks in Detroit a number of times. It's worth noting that the Detroit Institute of Arts has Cole's surviving sketchbooks, and they've digitized most, maybe all of them, and they are a, a, a tremendous resource. Did I leave anything out of that, 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 that connective tissue? <laughs>
1: <laughs> that was great, and you're certainly so right about the reflections. The reflections are are astonishing, and beautiful. I think they partly work toward a kind of doubling, in the paintings. I, I, I think a kind of amplification. I think of certain uh, values, and and they are they are gorgeous and very very interesting. In the river in the Catskills, the one with the railroad train in which I think it's true that Cole is expressing his aim. That is the one Catskill Creek painting which does not show reflections. It's a, it's a noonday sun, and there are no reflections of the mountains. The mountains were clearly regarded by Cole as a spiritual realm. That's how he saw them. In that one, they're gone.
0: Marvelous. Dan Peck, thank you so much.
1: Well, thank you, Tyler. It's been a pleasure.
0: Now open at San Francisco's de Young Museum is Ed Hardy: Deeper Than Skin, the first museum retrospective of the tattoo icon. It traces the evolution of tattooing from its subculture status to a fine art form through a survey of sketches, prints, three-dimensional objects, and paintings, including a 500-foot scroll that winds its way through the galleries. Discover the art of the tattoo with Ed Hardy: Deeper Than Skin, open now through October 6th. Visit deyoungmuseum.org for details. Experience Sheila Hicks Sees Weave Space on view at the Nasher Sculpture Center through August 18th. This site-specific fiber installation of the American-born, Paris-based artist transforms the Nasher Sculpture Center and galleries with her use of supple and pliable materials. With a career spanning more than six decades, Hicks continues to push perceptions of art beyond traditional associations and uses fiber to create sculptures and objects that give material form to color. Learn more at NasherSculptureCenter.org. The Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego presents More Like a Forest, Paintings and Sculptures by Richard Allen Morris at its downtown location through October 27th. This presentation, comprising a sculptural series from the artist's collection, as well as paintings drawn from the museum's own holdings, highlights Morris's ceaseless transformation of ordinary materials into extraordinary creations. For more information, visit MCASD.org. Welcome back. My next guest is the J. Paul Getty Museum's Elizabeth Morrison. Along with Larissa Grolemund, she's the curator of Book of Beasts, the Bestiary, in the Medieval World. The Bestiary is the tradition that brought animals, both real and imagined, to the pages of manuscripts, tapestries, and to all other manner of objects during the Middle Ages. The Getty Exhibition, which is on view through August 18th, includes not just manuscripts and tapestries, but also paintings, sculpture, decorative arts, and contemporary works that demonstrate the influence of the 1,500-year-old bestiary tradition. The terrific exhibition catalog was published by the Getty. Amazon lists it at 60 bucks. Elizabeth Morrison, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast.
2: Thank you so much for having me on.
0: What is the bestiary, and why does it recur in illuminated manuscript after illuminated manuscript after illuminated manuscript?
2: Well, the bestiary, I like to say, is somewhat like a natural history encyclopedia of animals, but instead of being concerned with things like what animals like to eat or where exactly they live or how much they tend to weigh, what they look like. It really is an encyclopedia that looks at all the animals of the earth as evidence of God's wondrous creation. And they're almost treated like secret coded messages about Christianity, where God created a beginning of time and put these behaviors into them that actually reflected his sort of divine plan for the world. The reason that they were so popular is, of course, they're so fabulous and beautiful. We actually have about 62 surviving illuminated Latin bestiaries, and we've gathered one-third of those together for the Getty's exhibition. So you really have a chance to sort of browse through them and see the variety of imagery. And if you think about it, if you know anything about illuminated manuscripts in this time period, you think, oh, okay, so there's something like the Bible, where you have a picture for Genesis, and then you go through a lot of pages, and you have, the next picture at Exodus, and you go through a lot of pages. And the bestiary has hundreds of images in a relatively very short text. So you really can't open a bestiary and see no images. Every page, every opening has images. And it just adds to the excitement, I think. And if you think about you're sitting around in the Middle Ages, you're a monk or you're a layman, really, what would you want, an illuminated Bible or an illuminated bestiary? I'd want a bestiary.
0: Okay, so we're going to come back to Christianity in a minute. But It's certainly worth noting that there are not only illuminated manuscripts in the show. There are, or in the catalog for that matter, and the catalog is amazing. There are every kind of object you can think of. Tapestries, panel paintings, a parade saddle, candlesticks, brooches, and a narwhal tusk that has been made into apparently a ceremonial staff. So what do we know or maybe what are we learning about how the bestiary migrated off of pages and into other objects.
2: So one of the main points of the exhibition is not just to show the world how fabulous the bestiary as a type of book is, but to show how influential it was in creating a sort of visual language that people in the Middle Ages could instantly recognize. So we often talk about how these animal images from the bestiary served as the medieval version of memes that went viral. Viral in medieval culture. And I often like to think of Grumpy Cat because a lot of people know Grumpy Cat. And you think about the fact that that's a meme that has so many meanings to so many different people. It's not about that particular cat and the owner and what was happening in that cat's day. It's become a symbol for being grumpy that you can apply to any situation. And that's very much like how these animal images actually exploded from the pages of manuscripts and inhabited all these different kinds of objects so that people could bring those meanings instantaneously as soon as they saw those animals.
0: Which raises the question, how did the bestiary develop in relation to Christianity? Is the iconography of the bestiary developing parallel with Christianity? Are elements of the bestiary coming from pagan symbols and migrating into Christian usage? What is the relationship there?
2: So a lot of the animals that you'll see in the bestiary have their origins in the ancient world because the bestiary included animals that we consider imaginary, like unicorns and dragons and sirens. But it also included animals that would have been exotic to those in the Middle Ages in Europe, that they would have considered foreign, such as lions and elephants. And then, of course, all the domesticated animals like goats and dogs. So it really covered the entirety of creation. But many of those animals, such as, you know, dragons and whatnot, appear in many different cultures all around the world. And it was in the second century that These animals were kind of gathered together for the first time in a text, so relatively early in the history of Christianity, and given these Christian symbolic meanings.
0: So, where did the animals come from, if you will? Did did they come from the experience of illuminators having traveled? Do they come from pagan texts? Where, where, where did they? How did they really?
2: all over the place. The idea of using animals as allegories for human behaviors and human situations is something that I think is just endemic to all cultures all over the world. But a good example is someone like Aesop. Everybody knows Aesop's fables, right? Those animals talk, they have interactions, they stand in for morals, virtues, vices, and they kind of enact these stories. So the idea of having animals that reflect moral precepts is something that goes way, way, way back, and what this author was doing in the second century was taking a selection of these animals and having them reflect Christian morals for the first time, and that text is something called the Physiologus, which was originally written in Greek, and then somewhere probably in the 12th century, the early 12th century, people started to add things, and so you'd get bits of Isidore of Seville, you'd get bits of Salinas, you get bits of this and that about these animal texts that get grafted onto the original physiologus, and the original physiologus had like 40 animals. By the time of the end of the 13th century, there are bestiaries that have over 200 animals. So it was more like an additive text rather than an authored text in the classic sense that we think of.
0: Let's pick an animal and talk about how we might see that animal in different places and in different ways through the, through the show. I'm a writer, so I'm a, I'm a Jerome nut, so I'll pick a lion. How do we see a lion or lions being used in and throughout the show?
2: So a uh, lion is a great example because it is always the very first animal that you encounter in the bestiary. As I said, bestiaries might include anywhere from 50 to 200 animals. They might be arranged in different kinds of orders, but always the lion is the first. And that's because the very first lines of the bestiary say that the lion is the king of beasts. And so I always say that Disney totally stole the lion king from the bestiary and never gave any credit whatsoever. <laughs> but the idea of the lion is a good example for giving an example of these Christian morals. And again, you have to imagine the point of this text is not to reflect scientific knowledge. The point is to reflect a Christological view of the universe. So the most famous story associated with the lion is that lion cubs are born dead. And it's only on the third day when the lion father comes to breathe in their faces, that they come alive. And so this was meant to reflect Christ's death and his resurrection three days later. And it was thought that God put this behavior in lions at the beginning of time because he was already thinking ahead to the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ for the good of mankind. And that's why the lion is considered the king of beasts, because he's a symbol for Christ.
0: There is a manuscript page visible in the show, and I'm hoping you can help me with which one, on which we see it in the bottom left of the page, a lion breathing life into cubs, and in the upper, upper left of the page, we see Christ being resurrected.
2: The leaf that you're thinking of is taken from a Christian service book. And this service book would have had the text necessary for saying the Mass by the priest. And so what you're seeing is there's actually an image of Christ's resurrection in the upper left-hand corner. And down in the bottom border below, you see a lion breathing onto its cubs. Now, as you may have noticed, there's no text there that talks about lions or breathing on cubs or anything like that. That. It's just that the medieval viewer would have made that connection because he or she was so familiar with the story of the lion. And of course, many people never would have seen a bestiary in their lives. They were made for very rich people, either in the church or amongst the nobility. But at the same time, these stories were very much like how they operate in our own culture. They get handed around verbally. People would have seen them depicted in church capitals when they went to. To church. They would have seen them in these various embroideries and tapestries that we have featured in the exhibition. And so there were many ways that they could have become familiar with both the story of the Lion and its image, even though they may have never seen a bestiary itself.
0: And then let's pick an object. In, in one of the first, maybe the very first, galleries of the show, there's a late 15th century Swiss tapestry that seems to mash together the bestiary, as we've been discussing, with non-animal Christian symbols—God, that's a bad phrase—such as the martyr's lily. How common was it to see the bestiary mixed with other—with flora, with other Christian symbols?
2: It was really common to see the bestiary imagery mixed in with other kinds of Christian symbols, because other kinds— of Christian symbols were also remarkably familiar to medieval audiences. So as you mentioned, there's a tapestry in the first gallery uh, that mostly focuses on the unicorn. And the story of the unicorn is that, uh, of course, the only way to capture it is to have a virgin alone in the woods and the unicorn will be attracted to her, come and put its head in her lap, and, and then the hunters who are hidden will leap out and kill it. And that is a metaphor for the idea of Christ. Leaping into the womb of the Virgin Mary. And then when he is born, he becomes vulnerable and can be killed, as in the crucifixion. But in the tapestry that you're mentioning, the unicorn is only a very small part of it. Basically, every single thing in that tapestry has Christian meaning. And there are little labels that try to help you out, but even I had to look up some of them because I wasn't familiar with them. And there's at least three bestiary animals in that tapestry, including the lion. Breathing on its cubs. But you'll also see Gabriel with four hunting dogs. And the four hunting dogs are each given a virtue like mercy and justice. And then you'll see the lily, which is a symbol for the virginity of Mary. And then you'll see Moses and the burning bush, which is viewed as an Old Testament uh, kind of precursor to the story of Christ and Mary. So the people in the Middle Ages had, I think, a really incredible visual knowledge and a way to read visual symbols that much exceeds, I think, our own in our culture. We're used to sort of very explanatory things, very narrative things. But because symbolism was such an important part of life in the Middle Ages, it appears everywhere and people were very used to reading and making sense of that language.
0: In the objects in the show and in the the, the, the broader world of, of, of the medieval period, does the bestiary evolve kind of parallel to the garden idea, or are these two separate ideas that makers, artists bring together?
2: There's a lot of interest in naturalia in general in the Middle Ages. Symbols like the Hortulus conclusus, which is the enclosed garden around the Virgin Mary, and flowers. I think they're, they're sort of parallel traditions that also intertwine. You may have noticed that one of the last galleries in the exhibition is about how the bestiary grew into its role in formulating the beginnings of zoology. And so it had a number of different roles. But one of the objects in that gallery is actually an herbal manuscript, which talks about all the different plants of the world and how they can be used uh, for medicinal purposes. And it's got a wonderful picture of a basil plant, and it has all these tiny little little basilisk dragon sort of swarming around it, because basil and basilisk actually, as you might have guessed already, have the same root word in that if you're bitten by a basilisk, you might want to use basil to try to cure it. So the two two, flora and fauna were kind of intertwined, even if they were also sometimes separated out.
0: Yeah, that's a great one. We'll have uh, an image of it on manpodcast.com. We keep talking about Christianity. Is the bestiary only a Christian or only a Western and Central European tradition? Or does it exist in other parts of the world and within other faith traditions?
2: So it's an interesting question because as we've talked about with the unicorn and the lion, a lot of these animals have a ready allegory that's actually written into the text of the bestiary. But there are also dozens and dozens of animals that don't have a specific Christian connection written into them. One of my favorite examples is this little known animal called the bonicon. And the bonicon is an animal that has horns that curve in on themselves. And so the poor animal can't use them for defensive purposes. So in a kind of Of early version of Darwin's species development, he's developed another form of defense, which is that he sprays out fiery dung out of his back end for uh, an area of three acres, which, as you can imagine, probably does discourage hunting the bonacon. But that's where the story ends. There's no Christian moral attached to that. It's just a great story. And you can imagine that medieval audiences enjoy that story just as much as we hear and enjoy it today. Now, maybe readers were like trying to make up some Christian moral message based on that, like you have to get rid of, you have to not stand behind the devil or he'll spray you with sin or who knows what they might come up with. But that was left to the reader. And I think a lot of this does form an area of entertainment in addition to moral exemplar. That dividing line is not clear at all in the bestiary. In terms of your question of how other cultures in the Middle Ages may have approached these things. In the exhibition, as you may have noticed, we have a number of non-Western or non-Christian objects. For some of the Islamic objects, for instance, they were drawing on the same stories that we see in antiquity, and they kind of went up one branch to Western Europe, and they went up another branch to the East and to Islam. And so you find the exact same stories in the bestiary that you might find in these other encyclopedias that were made in the Islamic world, Uh, even more interesting aspect to me is we've got a a very, very small but important section about Hebrew manuscripts. And of course, medieval Jews were living in the same areas as medieval Christians. They were occupying the same lands. And in a couple of cases, we see how Hebrew illuminated manuscripts have actually taken over the Christian imagery and sort of applied it to their own culture and their own texts. And a, a good example is the line breathing on its cubs that we were talking about, it's found in this uh, fabulous Hebrew Pentateuch manuscript that's just the first five books of the Hebrew Bible. And you look, you come up to it, and you're like, well, why is there a lion who represents Christ? What would he be doing in a Hebrew Bible? And the fact is that the lion illustrates the part of the text that talks about Abraham and Isaac. And according to some rabbinic commentaries, Abraham actually killed Isaac, and God brought Isaac back up to life. And so therefore, the lion breathing on its cub and bringing him back to life is just being reused in the sense of this Hebrew Bible. But what's fascinating to me is the only way that that imagery would have worked is if the Jewish person who owned the Bible actually already knew the bestiary story in its Christian context. And that, to me, says volumes about uh, what was happening between these visual languages between Judaism and Christianity in the Middle Ages that could be a really fruitful future avenue of research.
0: Finally, what might or does the bestiary offer to us about the relationship between manuscript painting and painting on panel during the, the Middle Ages?
2: I think one of the interesting things is that one of the important things about manuscripts is there is so little panel painting to survive from the Middle Ages. So the best record we have of painting of any kind in the Middle Ages is in manuscripts, which were often closed and therefore protected from the elements in the ways that paintings that might have hung in homes or hung in churches really were not. And so the survival rate of manuscripts and what they represent is so much truer to the history of medieval painting than something like panel paintings. It's really only when we're really crossing over into the Renaissance that we see animals become the focus of panel paintings in the way that they were in manuscripts. And so, of course, you would have had apocalyptic scenes that would have had seven-headed dragons and whatnot in medieval churches. But one of the great artworks, I think, in the exhibition is a wonderful painting uh, that the Getty owns by Hans Hoffman that is, a hair and the amazing thing about it is even for me I've worked at the Getty for 23 years and every time I think of that painting I think of it being very small like a pad of paper But it's enormous, and it never ceases to surprise me when I see it. And that's exactly what Hans Hoffman was going for. He was saying this is a monumental subject that deserves a huge panel painting just the way that a Christian story or a historical narrative might deserve. And every element of it is so carefully observed, each individual plant. But what's interesting about that particular painting is that the hair – never would have been found in a forest with all of those different flora and faunas, little lizards and plants. And they never would have been seen exactly in the same place because they came from different parts of the natural world. And so he's still combining them in a way that's very much like the way that you'd combine these animals in the bestiary, where you never would have seen unicorns or lions together or apart, because you never would have seen unicorns at all. So I think it really captures that same sense of the wondrousness of the diversity of God's creation.
0: That Hoffman, which is a pretty substantially curved panel at this point, is from about 1585. It's 24 by 31 inches. And if memory serves, in the show, it's hung next to a Bruegel the Elder painting of animals kind of wandering over toward Noah's Ark. Are we meant to look at those paintings in the show and think, oh, here are painters who are familiar with the bestiary from illuminated manuscripts and they're migrating from one to other?
2: I think it's it's a more general concept than that. I think the idea is more of a natural progression from the bestiary to those kinds of illuminated panel paintings. I don't think we have any idea whether Bruegel or Hoffman actually ever saw a bestiary. But the idea is they're drawing on a tradition that goes all the way back to the 13th century, whether they actually knew it or not. But they're doing it in new ways. For instance, the Bruegel painting that you mentioned is a vision of Noah's Ark, and so all the animals are approaching the Ark two by two, and you have wonderful leopards and elephants and horses and dogs, but you also have porcupines and guinea pigs and tortoises. And these are new world animals that they wouldn't have known about in the 13th century at all. And the painting was actually commissioned by Rudolf II, who had a menagerie at his court and probably brought in those animals and is now having Bruegel draw them to sort of hype up his menagerie, but at the same time, Bruegel is still putting it within the religious narrative of Noah's Ark. So it really does go back. Those are all the animals that were saved for uh, the rest of humanity, just like all the animals in the bestiary showed the diversity that they thought existed in the 13th century.
0: Elizabeth Morrison, thanks very much. Thank you. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth.